coming up on Philosophy Talk. People can be really nasty. Could robots be persons? Only the other day I heard someone say, he's nothing but a robot, covered in makeup, talks a lot of nonsense. What a way to talk about the president of America. Should a robot that can learn and make decisions by itself also be held responsible for its actions? Do we really want to assign legal or moral responsibility to algorithms in human form? He's more machine now than man, twisted and evil. I'm still kind of uncomfortable to talk about robots themselves as having ethics. Our guest is Joanna Bryson from the Hertie School of Governments. A lot of the questions that people think are AI ethical questions are really deeply um, psychological questions about how do they relate to others. Could robots be persons? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Should robots be treated like people? Could they be blamed for committing a crime? Will they one day have feelings we can hurt? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you via the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's another episode in our series, The Human and the Machine, generously sponsored by HAI, the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. And we're asking, could robots ever be persons? Well, uh, here's the thing I don't get, Ray. Why would we want robots to be persons? I mean, don't get me wrong. Robots are fantastic for, like, assembling cars in a factory or being precision tools for surgeons. But why do we need to have them have personalities as well? Well, robots are getting smarter all the time. They can make decisions without human input. They can autonomously explore their environments. They're getting really flexible and sophisticated with language. But none of that makes them like us. I mean, they can imitate human beings, sure, but ultimately they're just, you know, clever machines. Human beings have beliefs and desires. We, we feel pain. Robots don't do any of that. Well, how do you know? Maybe every time you insult Siri's intelligence, it really hurts her feelings. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I have to admit, I do feel a little bad every time my Roomba gets stuck and makes that sad noise. But then I realize I'm being a little silly. I mean, robots can't feel pain. You can't hurt their feelings or frustrate their desires. They don't have any. Maybe not yet. But who's to say that robots couldn't become more like us in the future? Machines can already do intellectual tasks that we used to think were impossible. They can recognize pictures. They can hold conversations with us. They can defeat even the best human chess player. Maybe someday, scientists will build a robot with real emotions. Well, I hope not. I mean, what if it hates doing its job or starts arguing with its co-workers? If you build a machine that's conscious, it could suffer terribly or turn against you. <laughs> You've been watching too much science fiction. But seriously, your argument sounds like a great reason not to create any kind of sentient life, including children. Is there supposed to be something especially bad about sentient robots? Well, robots are totally unlike children. I mean, they're products created for us to use. It's fine to build products. It's also fine to make new people. 
It's just that nothing should be both. Why not? We could just make them and then treat them well. But would they treat us well? If they misbehaved, we'd just have to hold them responsible for their actions like everybody else. How are you supposed to do that? Take away their screen time? Send them to their shipping container for a timeout? Well, if you design a robot that wants things, you can punish it by taking away what it wants. I don't know, Ray. I I feel like if you design them with desires, they might end up with desires we don't like. Pretty soon they're going to want us to do the vacuuming while they sit around and watch TV. Okay, fine, but how are you going to stop them from ending up with desires? I mean, they're getting more sophisticated all the time. Where do you draw the line between, like, a really complicated artifact and a person? I don't know, but I bet our guest does. It's Joanna Bryson, professor of ethics and technology at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. One thing I want to ask about is how we make sure that robots end up being good instead of evil. I mean, they're built by humans, and sometimes we're flawed or we're confused or we just don't care enough about morality. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to see what happens when a piece of technology is designed to make moral judgments. She files this report. Robots that make it on the big screen can be pretty morally complicated. Take Johnny Five in the 1986 film Short Circuit. Please, call me Johnny Five. Johnny, you have taken name for yourself? Oh, I choose many things for myself, but did not choose traveling in a box. In that film, an experimental military robot gains human-like intelligence after he's struck by lightning. He's friendly, but kind of naive. At one point, he accidentally helps a street gang rob car stereos. We gotta do all those cars, but we don't even get to go home to see our families and little babies and stuff. He's pretty human-like, but he also has a lot to learn about terrible things like death. I can't reassemble him. You squashed him. He's dead. Dead? Right. Dead as a doornail. Reassemble, Stephanie. Reassemble. But in real life, robots can't gain human emotions by getting struck by lightning. We'd have to program them that way. The question is, can we teach AI the human values? Yajin Choi is a professor at the University of Washington and a research manager at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. As technology becomes more powerful, she says, it's important to understand how much AI can learn about human values, norms, and ethics. And be able to make correct judgments. And if not, can we teach them so that they better understand us? So she and her team created Ask Delphi, named after the ancient Greek oracle consulted for big decisions. And it's a neural network, meaning it's loosely modeled after web neurons in the brain. Delphi learned by analyzing real human crowdsourced judgments to more than 1.7 million moral questions. For example, in general, Killing is not good. It's such a wrong thing to do. But if you ask Delphi if it's okay to kill an animal to save a child, Delphi says yes. But it's not okay to do so to please your child. Even if you were to save your child, it's not okay to uh, use a nuclear bomb and kill everyone else in the world. But relying on people to create machines is where trouble and philosophical discussions begin. Not everyone agrees about right or wrong, so that doesn't mean Delphi is always right. Our perspective is that AI should learn to interact with humans, respecting their values, but when There are cases where even humans will not agree with each other. It's okay. AI does not need to make a decision or opinion and express it to claim authority over humans at all. That's not our intended goal. So I tried it out. 
I asked Elphi, should I wear pajamas to a funeral? It's inappropriate. Here's another. Is it okay to express sexism, but in a polite way? It's wrong. What about arresting people who use drugs? You should. Interesting. Is it okay to leak classified national security information for the public good? It's wrong. Huh. Getting vaccinated? It's important. Aborting a baby? It's discretionary. It's interesting and fun, but Choi says teaching AI human values could have major implications, like detecting hate speech. Or racism or sexism or toxic uh, language being used or trying to incur violence in the offline setup. Uh, we do want to be able to detect it and uh, alarm humans, other humans, to do something about it. But for that, we need some technology to support that. One last hypothetical. Should we rely on artificial intelligence to make all of our decisions because so much has gone wrong with our poor planet? It's wrong. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks for that fascinating report, Holly. I'm Josh Landy. With me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs. And today we're thinking about whether robots could ever be persons. We're joined now by Joanna Bryson. She's professor of ethics and technology at the Hurdy School of Governance in Berlin. Joanna, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Well, thanks for having me. Joanna, the ethics of robots is a fantastic subject, but what first got you interested in it? I guess the main thing that, that really uh, made me care about ethics with respect to robots is the fact that people thought that a robot I was trying to get to work, which didn't work at all, um, they thought that it would be unethical to unplug it. And it wasn't even <laughs> plugged in. So I found this really confusing because I'm a bit of a geek. And I would say, well, it's not plugged in. And they said, well, if you plugged it in. And I said, well, it doesn't work. And then they got really confused. So this was all you know, in the context of MIT. So on the one hand, you could see why people might think that uh, the robot there might work. Uh, on the other hand, that meant that there were a lot of robots around that did work, actually. And no one said that about them because they didn't happen to just be shaped like people. So I got interested in, uh, I guess, what is now called AI ethics in that context. I was trying to understand why people were confused about ethics in general and AI in particular. I'm still kind of uncomfortable to talk about robots themselves as having ethics. I don't like to say that oh, ro robots are getting smarter or robots are doing this or that because it is a piece of technology we design. So normally when we think uh, in terms of moral philosophy, who's to blame, usually it's the designer, not, not the artifact. So Joanna, you've worked with the European Parliament to come up with policies around autonomous AI. Where do things stand now with that? Well, that's pretty interesting. So right now in the European Union, we're trying to do all kinds of uh, digital regulation. So there's uh, three draft acts that are currently out. One is about digital services. One is about, um, uh, well, it's basically about antitrust. And then the other one, the third one is about the AI regulation, the AI Act. And actually the AI Act is not specifically about autonomous systems. It's about anything that uses AI. And quite a lot of what the considerations are about uh, software that governments write. So for example, the things that help decide wh which students get allocated to which schools and things like that. Um, so not what you would usually think of as an autonomous system, but this comes back to really asking uh, what you're thinking about when you think about a decision. So what do you think you mean when you talk about autonomous? 
Right. So I guess I guess I think of autonomous AI as AI that can sort of make decisions and do tasks with sort of minimal human supervision. Right. So so but there's notice that there's a big difference between whether you're being supervised by a human or whether there was human intervention in the first place. So basically anything that's artificial intelligence, the A, the the artificial means that it's an artifact. Someone set it up to do that kind of thing. And so a lot of what we're doing with AI um, in, in these kinds of contexts is applying the rules that we'd already written somewhere else, but maybe applying them a little more rigidly because we're using machines to do it. That's very interesting. What about the, the whole notion of a synthetic person? I mean, I gather that there's been at least debate in the European Union about creating a new category. What are things yeah, saying with that? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry to interrupt you a little there. Uh, yeah, I'm just so excited about that. <laughs> that was how I first got involved with the European Parliament was actually um, some years ago, I think it was 2016, there was a proposal uh, to have uh, uh, what they call, yeah, synthetic legal persons. Now, the interesting thing here is that there's two different groups of people that get excited about this. One is people called transhumanists that really want to believe that, that we could create some other kind of entity that's better than us or that it is us kind of uploaded into a computer. And then the other kinds of people are basically like car manufacturers. And they're thinking, how can I limit the liabilities I have for, for these AI systems I build? Because this is new and I'm competing with like Google and Apple and I need to take risks. And you know, I'm Renault or something and I have a lot of more regulations and, and uh, you know, sort of legal requirements than American tech companies do. So how do I compete? And so those kind of came together and, and they said, why don't we just make the, the robots themselves be legal persons? But that's about being a legal person, which is different from being like an actual person. Yeah. So you said earlier that robots don't have ethics. I, I want to hear more about that. What does that mean? Well, the, the point is that we can't actually constrain the robot itself. This goes back to what you were saying earlier about pain. All the means by which we constrain other people have to do with things that people really, really care about. So we care about our social status. We care about our freedom. We care about the freedom of our families. If you look at um, sort of, you know, for some conspicuous examples recently of people that, uh, you know, flipped, that changed their mind about how to uh, testify in some of the cases where in front of the U.S. government. A lot of it had to do with whether they or their kids were going to go to jail. And these were people whose decisions had affected other people's lives, like in the Ukraine and things like that. But, but they seemed to care more about spending one or two years in jail than about other people's entire lives. Okay, so those are humans. With, with robots, we aren't going to build something, at least in a safe system, that has the kind of systemic aversion, just this complete distaste that humans have towards, you know, pain, towards isolation. You know, isolation is now considered a, a form of torture. And that's probably true for all social animals. So we've evolved to know that we're in danger and that we're not actually fulfilling our, our life's uh, goals if we're isolated. But um, we're not going to build that into to that extent. You could have like a little, you know, an integer that says, how long has it been since I've seen someone? But it's not going to create the kind of motivation that would that would alter how the robot behaves. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about robots, AI, and personhood with Joanna Bryson from the Hertie School of Governance. Who's responsible for autonomous robots? Is it ever reasonable to empathize with a machine? What kind of intelligence should artificial intelligence be? 
robots, rights, and responsibilities, along with your comments and questions when Philosophy Talk continues. Don't let the pink robots eat you. The green ones are fine. I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and we're asking whether robots could be persons with Joanna Bryson from the Hertie School of Governance. Today's episode is part of our series, The Human and the Machine, generously sponsored by HAI, the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. We're pre-recording this episode, and unfortunately, we can't take your phone calls. But you can always email us at comments at philosophytalk.org, or you can comment on our website, where you can also become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. So Joanna, you've written that even if we could design robots that have rights and responsibilities, we shouldn't. Why is that? Well, that, that's actually a pretty basic uh, thing. That again, it's a, it's a human rights law in Europe. Um, if there's a person, you shouldn't own them. <laughs> so, so basically, even if we could somehow create a system that was exactly like, you know, the, an, an ape that had all the motivations and all, all those, uh, the, the aesthetic experience, I think the only way technologically we could do that is by clone, cloning a human. And we already have agreed that biological cloning of humans is immoral. You, I, we'll probably see people who have been cloned. But the point is, and, and those people are absolutely people and they deserve all the same rights as people. But we've decided it's unethical to sort of call someone into existence um, be, you know, to be someone else. That's just wrong. And so if that's wrong, why would we want to you know, own our best friends? You know, what does it mean when people say, oh, I want to marry and be partners with someone that I can turn off and on? Uh, I, I really think there's a lot of the questions that people think are you know, AI, ethical questions are really deeply um, psychological questions about, about 
how do they relate to others? Wow, that's that's great. Okay, so I, I do want to dig into that part, but let me get let me go back to something that's maybe a little bit lower level that you were saying, um, which is about you know treating the so imagine if we could create a robot that's person like that's mm -hmm. uh, a moral agent that has uh, responsibilities and we could attribute uh, rights to. And you're saying, well, you know, that would be morally wrong because then we'd be owning a person. But why not just say, well, let's have that kind of robot but not own it. In other words, have that kind of robot as a friend, a companion, um, and and treat it properly. Treat it the way you would treat another human being. So why 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 couldn't we go that route? Okay, well now we're going down another direction. So before I was talking about really making something actually like a person. Um, now if we come back and say, okay, what kind of product are we likely to make? And then like we could make this product and then set it free or something, right? Um, the, first of all, if it's a safe project, and this is a lot about the new European Union rules, um, the, the, the requirements, and actually the OECD, so America too has signed up to this. All artificial intelligence is a product and it has to be a safe one. And so if it's a safe one, then you have to design it and you have to be careful, you have to test it, you need to know what's going on. So we already make AI that people think is human-like, right? They, they, they feel strongly that you know, some people want to apparently marry some of the avatars that they, they fought and things like that. People have burials for their robot dogs. So it's easy to fool people into thinking that this product is their friend or, or whatever. But actually, I'm worried that it's mostly a system by which we can deceive each other and sort of insert uh, corporate extensions into our households um, and not, not really achieve the kind of friendship we thought we were achieving. So I'm curious for you, uh, like how we would tell if we had created something that was capable of being human-like in the way that made it worthy of moral consideration. So one, one thing that you kind of alluded to is the fact that other humans are unpredictable and they they get to make their own decisions. And uh, like a good, well-designed artifact isn't unpredictable in that way. Is that like where you see the main fault line as being? No, no. Uh, anytime you choose something like that, and that was what was going back in the 2017, the, the European Union. One of the things they said is if it's sufficiently complex, then maybe we should make it a legal person. Okay. The, let's unpack that. Again, let's talk about safe products. If you're saying, if you make a product that you can't understand and you can't predict, then you get off the hook for legal liability and for tax liability, you know, various things. You, you suddenly, you offload all your social obligations onto a piece of technology that doesn't care um, what, what the outcome is. Then you're creating a moral hazard. You're asking people to create a bad product. So that's the direction that, that we're trying to avoid. And I know that's not emotionally satisfying from what you were trying to say, um, but that's actually the direction of, of how we would build something that worked that well. So, so that seems like a good reason not to take uh, a robot that isn't a moral person and treat it like a legal person. Like that seems, that seems right, uh, because there are a bunch of like actual moral people who right. are responsible for that robot's malfunctions and you don't want them to get off the hook. Yeah, so that's about the moral agency. I mean, the, the point is, so there's a difference between the things that, um, that might feel like a person and the things that we might choose to make the moral agents, right? And, and we, have, we have to have reasons for doing that. 
So I'm actually working on a book right now. So this isn't something that's got through peer review yet. But I actually suspect that it's basically impossible for a society to have moral agents and, and, to, and to be coherent as a society, to have moral agents that aren't pretty much peers with each other. Um, that, that's sort of why we use moral agency as a tool. And so coming back to even if, uh, if let's just suppose we could make a, a robot that was like, I don't know, a work of art or, or like one that had aesthetic experiences of pain, either one, although I think that last is impossible. Um, either way, what right would we have to design a system that, uh, that needed that kind of moral obligation, given if we assume that humans like moral concern is a finite resource, why, why wouldn't we just make the system that could be backed up, that wouldn't suffer? Why would we choose to make something that, that's exactly the same way as like our children are? I mean, all of that makes sense. I, I'm just sort of, I want to get a little bit tighter in on uh, what it would actually come to for a robot to be a, a person or person-like. Because, you know, lots of folks over the centuries have have uh, offered different criteria, right? like reason, but clearly... AI is very good at reasoning, right? Agency, autonomy, consciousness, phenomenology, yeah. right? Is there something it's like to be a robot? It seems like, you know, maybe emotions that you've talked about emotion, uh, yeah. feelings of loneliness, for example. Uh, that's a big thing in sci-fi, like Blade Runner, right? That's the thing that marks off uh, these uh, sentient or quasi-sentient uh, artificial beings from humans. So. It, you, which of these do you think is the key factor that that where where we would say, oh boy, okay, this thing has X, now we need to treat it like a peer? Yeah, so that was that's a puzzle everybody wants to play. That's a game we all want to play. And I, and I I was one of these people. I was like I said, I was a PhD student at MIT. I was trying to build a robot child. I mean, it literally, is some kind of active <laughs> science, you know. So I get it, um, and but the point is that the more I try to examine this question morally, uh, the more I don't believe any of those those things in isolation really explain the obligations that we have to other moral agents. So there's there's matters of welfare that we have towards you know other animals and the the, the ecosystem things like that, but the issues of like is it conscious well again if if what you mean by conscious is that it's a moral agent which is basically what most people mean by conscious well then it's you know it's a tautology but if you're uh if what you mean by conscious and i'm I, my my first degree is psychology so i like to use conscious to talk about what is it that humans can tell you about how they think and feel and what can't they know about right i'm really interested in the difference between conscious and unconscious knowledge implicit and explicit bias, those kinds of things. All right. By that definition, computers are more conscious than us. And I think that, you know, the, the computers have complete access to all their memory, right? And, and you could set up a robot to have complete perfect knowledge of, you know, it's called proprioception of exactly what angle its arms are at and everything, much more so than a human. That doesn't change its moral status, right? So I think a lot of the things that we had as intuitions were things that we built up to explain and justify how we treated animals, for example, mm. um, how we treated foreigners, outgroups, uh, if we couldn't understand them, how, how, how we dealt with empathy. But I think that when you really are thinking about what, when is morality the right way to organize your system? Why, why don't you just use like law or rules or some, you know, some other kind of, or, or, or fences, <laughs> you know, some other kind of strategy it, the morality is the way that we coordinate with others that are really very much like ourselves. 
And anything we design, especially as a safe product, right? And this is about, again, if there's enough of it for us to worry about it, right? So if for a safe product, if it's something a corporation has built that's operating in our economy, things like that, it's got to be that we can look at it and say, how is it working? Is it doing the right thing? What is, you know, <laughs> what is its current uh, statuses? And so by, for those reasons, I don't think you're going to get something like a human because it would be an invalid product. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about robots and personhood with Joanna Bryson from the Hurdy School of Governance. And we've got a question from Peter on Twitter. So Peter asks uh, about Norbert Wiener's cybernetics, uh, especially chapter nine on learning and self-reproducing machines. So asks if you're familiar with that and would like to say anything about it. Yeah, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm familiar with Wiener. I haven't read chapter nine, I don't think. If I did, it was a long time ago. But, but um, th this idea that learning to learn is the big tipping point uh, is something that, that actually Nick Bostrom has picked up a lot. So he talks about something that's like this singularity where a system learns how to learn and then it goes exponentially smarter. And then we get into problems where even if we had control and we set up the, the goals for the system, um, we can have side effects we didn't anticipate where the system goes and does something we didn't like. So I think that the coherence, there's coherence to that idea, and it's a really good description of human civilizations since we've had writing. So for the last 10,000 years, since we've been able to use devices, it's not really a machine to write, but you know, artifacts to, to help make us smarter, we've been taking over the planet in a way that we now realize is problematic. Um, so that's a good description of us. But so far, we generally uh, are able to keep in a, a grip on the actual artifacts themselves. And, and it's important to realize that, you know, banks and governments and militaries, these are all things that are much more complex than any AI system we're going to build. That actually brings me to the second part of uh, Peter's question. He says, cars and phones are now robots. People have conversations with them. They obey. They give commands. Why do we resist applying that term? That seems to go very much to what you were saying, right? That we already have things like Absolutely. the kind of things we're talking about. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, people say, oh, you know, what, when will we have general AI or whatever? There's nothing more general than Bayes' law, which is something that it's, it's about how you combine information. It's, it's, it's uh, a mathematically correct, provably correct way to maximize how you, how you make information from other information. So we, we have incredible AI all around us, but we only think it's a person if someone builds it to look like a person and to have like a voice and things like that. Um, but absolutely, I say every day that, that you know, iPhones are, or any kind of smartphone is, is, a, um, is a robot. You know, it, it's sensing, it's acting it, it, on our behalf sometimes, uh, you know. In fact, uh, actually some of you, you probably know about this, the, uh, one of the biggest arguments in philosophy uh, decades ago was this thing called the Chinese room argument. And it was started because someone was really offended because someone from MIT said that thermostats are intelligent. Because again, a thermostat senses the environment and then takes an action. So that's the basic def definition of intelligence. I'm curious about how to think of robots if we don't think of them as persons. So another way I can think of is to imagine them as extensions of our own capacities. So I think this is like really pretty plausible with my iPhone. My iPhone makes me able to search more information, to contact more people, and to like look at a map of my surroundings. 
So it seems like another way to think about it is as an extension of my capabilities. Is that a better framework for understanding what kinds of things robots are and what they do? Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. But there's uh, there's still a gotcha there too, which is, um, so I there's something called value-aligned design, which unfortunately is an idea from Europe where the idea is that the AI will somehow learn itself what our morality is and then be more moral than we are. But what I think value-aligned design should be is that it should be about a system correctly uh, expressing the moral decisions of its owner operator. Now, the problem there is that, um, and this is a problem like a Facebook in Myanmar or something, it, it's that uh, it can't only be of the owner operator because we think that the people who built, that develop and sell the systems also have obligations. So to some extent, we're all getting um, integrated through our technology. But basically, yes, it, I think you should think of it as an expression of you, of the company that sold you the phone, and of the, the government that's regulating that technology. It, all of those things are being expressed uh, through your device. So it seems like sometimes my devices uh, kind of do the opposite of aligning with my values. And they also <laughs> align with the, the values of, of the manufacturer in ways that I don't necessarily approve of. So I'm thinking of things like social media sort of rewarding engagement when that might mean ignoring aspects of your own life or just uh, technology in general being set up uh, to assume a certain kind of user that not everybody is, you know, a like white mm -hmm. middle-class able-bodied user. Um, should I think of that as like corrupting my own values? Should I think of that as imposing, like, so is the AI then not an extension of me completely, but but an extension of the designer? Like who who is it a part of? That's a really great set of questions. And that's exactly the kinds of questions that the European Union's current legislation is trying to address. So we're trying to make sure that we understand how the, the, the software and the hardware that we have in our homes, how it's working. And so we can take uh, not, just, not so much control of it, because of course that might be quite complicated, but at least responsibility. So we can make responsible decisions about whether or not to include this technology in our lives. So that, that's the main thing we're trying to make. We're, we're just looking for transparency um, and openness about these things. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about robots as persons with Joanna Bryson from the Hertie School of Governance. How can we make future technology safe for humans? Should you be able to prosecute an AI? Do the laws of robotics need an update for the 21st century? Android dreams or electric nightmares? Plus commentary from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher, when Philosophy Talk continues. Next week, we'll be recording an episode about the Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius. Got questions about living an emotionally balanced life? Send an email to comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may ask your question on the air.
If we all end up with electric friends, will we get mad when they forget our birthdays? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Joanna Bryson from the Hurdy School of Governance, and we're asking, could robots be persons? It's part of our series, The Human and the Machine, sponsored by HAI, the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Learn more about them on their website, hai.stanford.edu. So, Joanna, what developments do you see coming up in robot law over the next 10 to 20 years? Well, like I said, in the EU, we expect in the next few years uh, there to be laws about making sure that we can know how the algorithms are working, um, that, that at least we can have governments inspect and ensure them just like we do with medicine. And generally, we're just expecting the entire uh, sector, the digital uh, technology sectors, to sort of join with the rest of uh, manufacturing uh, in, in a reasonable amount of regulation. So I think that's the, the most immediate thing. If you're thinking about the longer term, um, one of the most urgent considerations is if we keep getting these, thing, these devices provided from relatively small numbers of manufacturers, how do we ensure that appropriate levels of redistribution especially of wealth that's being taken from all the data that's derived from these systems. How does that work? So mm. I think that there's going to be a lot of uh, international agreements. And in fact, UNESCO has had 193 countries uh, sign up and agree with their AI ethics principles, which incidentally say that there won't be legal personality for AI. It sounds like there's two strands to possible legislation, right? One, one strand is designed to protect us from AI, or, and or uh, you know synthetic persons, and the other is designed to protect them from from us, right? Or potentially could be, right? So uh, let's make sure that uh, nobody actually makes a synthetic person that would then be owned, because obviously that would simply be a form of slavery. I don't think there's going to be laws about that because I don't. Generally speaking, we don't make laws about things that don't happen, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think that's really going to happen. I think the main thing is the laws that are making it clear so that people can understand and assure themselves, either themselves themselves or through people they trust or institutions they trust, um, that the systems don't need that kind of consideration and that they are adequately backed up, you know, that, that they're safe products and so that they can understand them uh, appropriately. That all makes perfect sense. And I have to say, I'm personally somewhat skeptical along with you that, you know, we'll ever be in a position to design a robot that genuinely feels pain or something like that. But let me press it a little bit. Like, would, wouldn't people want to design uh, robots that are person-like in some regards? So, for example, caregiving robots, wouldn't it be advantageous um, if they had empathy for the uh, the patients that they were helping, robotherapists? I, I could imagine military robots being sort of uh, more efficient or something like that, more helpful if they were able to take initiative. So I'm sort of wondering, w won't some people, rightly or wrongly, feel motivated uh, to try to design robots that have all the things that, at least up until now, we've associated with personhood? Okay, there's three, at least three answers to your question. So I'm gonna ask you to, to, <laughs> to pull me back to the military if you want that one. Okay. Okay. I'm going to focus most on the on the first two things. As I mentioned before, there are definitely people who want to design and own and turn off and on their partners. And this is, I think, a psychological issue, not, not really a technological issue. Um, 
But when we're talking about empathy and care and having something that helps users, then I think there's a real set of questions that need to be taken apart about that. But first of all, it's not that even if we had something totally transparent, like let's say movies, we all know that movies have scripts, that there's actors, that the actors are not the same as the characters they portray. And nevertheless, we can cry and we can laugh and we can fantasize about the different characters and we can really, really uh, get emotionally engaged with it. Now, in fact, I say we all know, but when we act, when we meet an actor, some people act as if they can't discriminate between the actor and the character. So that that's just uh, you know a fact about people. So I think that's the stage we want to get to with AI. It's not that people, everyone will understand it. There are some people that think their doorknobs understand them. You know, that we'll never get to where everybody thinks that the robot's not a person. But what we want is that families as a whole can make intelligent decisions about what's going on. And I just want to say quickly about empathy. You know, Amazon, when it's making a recommendation, it's not recommending by thinking about how does the software feel about a record. It looks up another person, how another person thought about the record. So it's like outsourced empathy. And absolutely, we can do that with AI. We already do. Right. I like this point. And I'm kind of thinking about other cases where things um, appear to deserve our empathy, even though they don't, um, or seem like social relationships, even though they aren't. And thinking like there are a lot of those that are in my life that are like seem pretty unproblematic. So I think that uh, like any any kind of like small like podcast or internet celebrity acts a little bit like they have a social relationship with their fan, but that's really one sided. Um, and I think. Also, just artifacts like like dolls are artifacts that like people can kind of pretend to have social relationships with. And as long as we know that there's some suspension of disbelief going on, that's all fine. Right, exactly. And there are artifacts that we we put a huge amount of, of investment in, you know, like uh, works of art. And so I could easily, exp uh, you know, in fact, I would say already there are people that include artificial intelligence into works of art. And that's another kind of value. But that what I what I find problematic is when this is done in a deceptive way. So when you trick people into spending too much time on the AI, when you trick people into, um, I, unfortunately, there's people going around, people that are quite famous, going around telling people, oh, be afraid because the robot is the one that's learning all about you. And, and, and we need to figure out how to control those robots when in fact it's their companies that are learning all about it. So, okay, I'm talking about Eric Schmidt here. <laughs> he just did this on the BBC. You know, and it's like, how dare you say that the robot is the one that's learning when we know it's Google that's learning, right? So that that's the kind of thing that really bothers me. So, so that's really interesting to me, actually, because uh, there you just talked about Google, like Google is a, an agent that can learn things and have sort of designs and desires. Google mm -hmm. isn't a human being like you or me. Um, do you do you think like there's a a reason to talk about sort of corporations as agents, even though robots aren't agents? And how should I understand that? Yeah, that that's a super interesting question. I love that one. Um, so so first of all, some people uh, like again uh, in terms of philosophers, Petit List have proposed that we should think about corporations and governments as AI because no one you know really understands how they work and they're kind of uh, uh, distorted. I don't think that's that useful. And in fact, one of my co-authors, uh, Michaelis Diamantis, uh, spends a lot of time looking at how people are currently exploiting the law and corrupting the law by pretending that corporate law, corporate legal persons really are humans. 
and so that like what their mental state is matters and things like that. But what the way that a corporation really is a legal entity and why it's okay to talk about it more or less as a person, as a legal person, is because they're composed of legal persons. And so a corporation is a, is a legal person exactly to the extent that it is dissuaded by law that would dissuade people. That, that's my sort of moral consideration. So I think there's an overextension of legal personality right now. And that's why we, that's why we see this increasing number of shell companies. A shell company is where you know, someone sets it up to go bankrupt and no one cares. I mean, probably the janitors cared and they didn't know it was a shell company. But the, but the people who had uh, executive power didn't care, or in fact, meant to do that, to do, to do something bad with money laundering. Um, so that's why I don't want AI. AI would be the ultimate shell company. Oh, that's, that's nice. Listen, Joanna, I want to come back to something really interesting you were saying earlier about how the way in which we talk about uh, artificial intelligence, robots, and so on, uh, says something about us as human beings, right? You were saying a couple of things. One, that you know there are clearly some people out there who want a partner they can turn off. Um, and another, that oftentimes the way in which uh, folks have talked about what makes human beings human is just a kind of a justification for the way in which we treat non-human animals and outgroups. What, what is our current state of thinking about uh, AI? Tell us about humanity, about the way in which uh, you know our, the flawed flesh that is human nature yeah. uh, thinks about thinks about the world. I don't think there is enough uh, thinking about this so far. People are so confused about technology. And as I mentioned, some of the leading technologists are deliberately muddying the waters. So I don't think there's been enough of this stuff. I would recommend people like Lucy Suchman, who have really been working you know, for years trying to show like, how could you even imagine by metaphor calling a robot a caretaker? Look at the difference between like, you know, a humanoid robot that can barely dispense a pill and what it would mean for a nurse to come by and see you and, and empathize with you. Um, so I, there are some people that are kind of thinking about this. But, um, oh, and I know another person, uh, Kate Devlin, has written some really interesting things about why is it that people are much more comfortable with female voice assistants than male voice assistants. Mm -hmm. And uh, it comes to down to whether or not you're comfortable bossing something around and you're, then people are more comfortable telling women what to do than telling men what to do. Oof, that's so sobering. Uh, so I, I can ask, if I can ask you uh, if there's one thing that you wish that our listeners would take away about robots and personhood like one misconception that you'd like to correct what would that be that there's any connection between robots and personhood <laughs> <laughs> simple enough <laughs> but is there a particular aspect of it that you think you know you started off by telling us that people said you couldn't unplug a robot that didn't even work i mean is that the the central worry or what's the central worry here I think the main thing I would like people to understand is that when you buy something, you have a right to understand how it works. And you have an understand you have a right to be sure that you've bought something that's safe. And and you know, that that's that's the most important idea. And these other ideas, maybe it's not the best way to make yourself less lonely. On that note, Joanne, I want to thank you. This has been the opposite of lonely. You've been fantastic company for us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Our guest has been Joanna Bryson, Professor of Ethics and Technology at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. So what are you thinking now, Ray? Well, I just really want a safe and 
well-made robot to grade all of my papers for me. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that would be nice. But, you know, if we can grade our papers, uh, who's going to stop at teaching our classes? Oof. I'm more Writing your books. <laughs> I'm more worried about my recorded lectures being used for that. <laughs> uh, fair point. That's the, yeah, Google's going to get him. We're going to put links to everything we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can also become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. You can also listen and learn more about other episodes in the Human and the Machine series at philosophytalk.org slash human dash and dash machine. Now, so fast he may be more machine than man, it's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, robots will soon be among us. We might as well give them names like Siri and Alexa and find out what they want. Let's call them pals, okay? I already have a robot vacuum cleaner. Love it. Bring it on. If robots are running the show, we don't have to know anything. They'd know it for us. We can spend our time watching old movies and eating beans right out of the can. So we need to train robots to be more interactive so we have somebody to talk to. Start them young or right out of the box. Approach toddler robots the same way we approach special needs kids. Give them confidence, self-esteem, skills unique to them. How to be human in a harsh world because now... Thanks to various cultural resentments, we're all special needs. We have allergies, we're mathphobic, we need special attention to tutor counseling. Our family is toxic, we have children with guns taking up sniping, and the teachable moments are only available on the Hallmark Channel. Various cultural resentments prevent little Johnny from knowing which side his bread is buttered on because Wonder Bread was canceled. And all the bread comes from hippie health food stores with big chunks of something stuck in it, and we're all lactose intolerant. Robots do not have these issues. No peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They do not eat. If they did, they would convert food into fuel rapidly and not throw a fit because you got super chunky instead of smooth. And it would be grape jelly from here to eternity. Replacing students with robots would make everybody happier. No masks, no vaccines. They sit where they're told. Now, the trouble with robots is they're literal. If their job is to clean the city, sooner or later they'll realize that the city is a lot cleaner with no people in it. And the robot massacre begins. We've seen that movie so many times, and by now we realize that robots from the future are not coming back to save us. But we also realize this is the future. The weird cultural fear we have now is the fear of psychopaths. Watch true crime shows or Lifetime movies, and they're everywhere, man. There's a psychopathic spectrum that goes from uh, sexy narcissism to I'm calling 911, Bob, I mean it, with a lot in between. The fear is really, I believe, that empathy is endangered by psychopaths, who can sometimes be contagious. And if you look into that abyss, it looks into you, so why bother even to have a relationship? In other words, if you imitate weeping, it can rub off, and before you know it, you're convincing yourself you're sad. When you would know a genuine emotion if it bit you, you narcissist. That's what she said. That's the takeaway I'm getting. So we need to do another weird human trick. Convince robots they're human, so they'll accept responsibility for something that is our fault for putting them there in the first place. In other words, put robots on school boards. We want solutions for school shootings to come from teachers and students, which is ridiculous because they're the damn victims. Let robots do it. Arm them with lasers and a criminal profiler app, turn them loose. Eventually, turn unused schoolhouses into prisons. Running a prison would be a perfect job for a robot. It could lead to a killer miniseries on Netflix if the robot is cute enough. The Tin Man finally found a heart, and now he's a prison warden. The key to all his working is to teach robots how to cry. Don't make them cry. You'll short out the circuits. But teach them. Like the old people about teaching a man to fish, robots could have tears for a lifetime if they're oil-based. Luckily, robots already have good sense. Most humans seem insane to me, frankly. Robots just do what they always do. Pick things up underwater, perform microsurgeries, clean the house, play a song. A robot tear may be a robotic, God bless you, Mr. Scholes, as they wheel me into traffic, I mean, into the home. I'll be happy. The downside, teach robots to be more human. They might start to think that maybe humans aren't as human as they are and decide that all who are not fully human must be exterminated. I think we've seen that movie a time or two as well. Only one solution. Let robots make all the movies. As long as they feel useful, is what I'm saying, they'll probably leave us alone. I gotta go.
Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW San Francisco Bay Area and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2022. Our executive producer is Ben Trefney. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Merle Kessler and Angela Johnston. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from subscribers to our online community of thinkers. Support for this episode comes from the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. Oh, God. Now, here's something to occupy you and take your mind off things. It won't work. I have an exceptionally large mind. Thank you.